Hello and welcome to the GC Call. This is a podcast we're bringing to you from Gulf Capital, the leading alternative investment firm in emerging markets from North Africa to Southeast Asia. I'm Nabil Ismail, Executive Director in the Private Equity Team. And I'm Alwar Abeya, Managing Director in the Private Equity Team. This is part two of our conversation with Ankur Shah, ex-CFO of Karim, talking about his 3T framework, TAM, Trajectory, and Team. If you haven't heard the first part, I'd recommend you do that first. You'll find that episode in your podcast app just before this one. Let's resume our conversation with Ankur, where we are starting to get into general and admin expenses, or as we like to call it, GNA. So you were talking about GNA and how how you leverage your your overheads. Uh, that's going to be one area that investors will also be focusing on over the next couple of months. Have you actually taken the hard medicine, the pain? Uh, to be able to survive over over what's coming, and everybody's uh, quite doom and gloom about you know the the scenario, the forward looking scenario at least over the next twelve months, and some businesses have been more effective. The guys who are you know looking around the corner as we say and trying to be as efficient as possible with their operations, and some businesses we see are still living in twenty twenty one, where if you fail to live in today's world in reality you'll probably be running out of cash and it'll be very difficult to attract new capital if you are trying to raise new capital in the next 12 months. On, on the GNA side, that's that's very clear. But also you you have a management team that was you know blessed with super high valuation. So that incentive for this management team to continue, not specifically talking about the founders, but everyone else that probably has ESOPs, He's, they're moving from a super high valuation to almost dec- the, the whole ESOP is decimated because of the current market environment. So how do you balance these these two things? And you have to issue more ESOP. But I think it was the, the question, if I understood correctly, it was more regarding valuation and sort of resetting, right? Yeah. The founder that thought was, you know, his, his company was valued at a billion and, you know, his quick mental math, owning 15%, he was worth 150. And all of a sudden, the next day he wakes up and he's no longer worth 150, but maybe 50. How do you reset that across the company, across the management layer and below? Yeah, so, I mean, mathematically, there's no magic to it. You need to just issue more, you know. If, let me put it this way, I think if you are paying someone something, right, now, being part of a company, compensation is not the only value proposition of employment, right? There's many other things, total reward, the culture, the people that you work with, and so on. If we're focusing just on compensation, and if you thought you were paying someone 100, and it turns out that you're paying them 15 is more like it um, uh, compared to 50 or even 30, then and if you believe that that is a driver, then you need to pay them more. Uh, which means that uh, probably the ESOP needs to be revalued and more equity needs to be issued in order to retain. Um, I think what tends to happen is um, often headcount gets and people get hired after big big rounds. And so just at the point where a large round and presumably a large price has been underwritten, um, a lot of new people come in uh, with ESOP issued at that price. And so if a revaluation does take place in the market, then 
the people that have most recently come in are the ones that are and in the largest numbers are likely the ones that are most at risk because their equity is likely the one that is most underwater. If there's a strong enough reason to believe that they're truly underwater and if compensation is a large part of the value proposition of employment, then obvious solution is to increase the compensation, right? But that's difficult in an environment where you need to manage your um, your dilution as well as your um, as well as your GNA expenses carefully. Yeah, absolutely. And I was I was thinking basically when it comes to GNA, on one side you need to let go of your employees to make sure that the business gets close to profitability and take that pill. And on the other side, am I award rewarding? Uh, my management team for my valuation that has dipped by 50-70% to a certain degree some of it is the market but the others could be them so um, the others could be them meaning could be their performance they haven't it's performed possible. yeah yeah it's possible of course that's a sort of an ordinary challenge right yeah. um, you're always evaluating yourself and others for underperformance and if you believe that there's underperformance then that's different from compensation so if you believe that there's underperformance, then you act on the underperformance. Right? So you you basically try to separate these two. And it, it becomes very vivid when you talk about founding team versus management. Management is relatively straightforward. A founding team acting as CEOs or CFOs or anything else, their shares plus the equity plus everything else becomes, you know. I think a good way to look at it is what would you pay to fill that position today? Yeah. Independent of the person who is in that position, right? There is a market value for that position. Now, the person who is sitting in that role, independently, you can evaluate whether you believe that person is performing or not performing. But the market value for that role is independent of that person. Yeah. Right. So, in a theoretical construct, you ought to pay market value for that position. Secondly, you ought to determine whether the person in that seat, it may be you, is performing or not performing, right? And then take action accordingly. But the market value of that role is what you would pay to fill it today, right? So let me throw in my rose-colored sort of comment on that. I think precisely because of what you're saying regarding talent and the value of that talent, things have been reset there as well, right? You're going to see a lot more talent at different price points or let's say compensation points. Um, and actually, if we look back through history, some of the best companies have actually been created out of these crises, right? Whether it was after the the first dot-com bust yeah, in 2001, right. 2002, or you know, 2009, 2010, post the great financial crisis. So those companies were able to attract excellent talent at rates that were not available before those crises. So hence, sort of my optimistic comment about the vintage coming over the next 12, 24 months. Vintage in the sense of, you know, the cohort of companies that will be formed and will be able to really attract great talent and do great things. I think there is... the. It doesn't seem like there's a capital crunch in the region just yet. There's certainly a late stage capital crunch um, in the global markets, or at least in the uh, in the in the U.S. Uh, I'm not so sure there's a labor there's labor availability yet. The labor market's still pretty tight, 
And I think conversation has still increased very significantly, even in the last 12 months. Now that may change as the capital constraints put people out of business and then that floods the labor market to the point where labor is available. But but I feel precisely because there was so much capital available over the last 10 years and so many companies got funded that a lot of that labor has gotten soaked up. And I, I think we're we're still not seeing that labor sort of fully returning to the market. I mean, there's two things uh, on that regarding talent and specifically if we're talking tech, right? One is that it's a lot more mobile now thanks to Zoom and you know the post-pandemic world where you're able to really work work remotely. And we'll see what happens with hybrid work. There, There's a few sort of theses in terms of where we're going to be headed. Probably something, a discussion for another episode, not not today. Yep. But the, the other being, yes, in this region, maybe it hasn't hit yet. I think in 2008, 2009, there was this thought of, oh, we're decoupled from the rest of the world economy and it wasn't the case i think we're going to see that happening here as well as you see guys like i mean we i was reading this article with bill Gurley and the interviewer saying oh just look flash breaking news robin hood has let has let it go of 23 percent of their staff right when they were talking and you know klarna has also let go of x percent and here this company sofi and the other one so we are going to see more available talent ready to work in in other environments in other geographies um and and maybe the fact that you have that hybrid model again i'm not saying which model will work whether it's again going back to the office or a totally remote etc we'll have to see but i think that flexibility will allow you to hire great talent that perhaps is ready to look at a different rate set uh, than what you have here in the region today so that competition in terms of value of talent, we'll we'll start to see that. My prediction, and I mean, that's I, why I, I think I, you're going to be able to rate, to have great talent and great companies being formed here as well. I, I would also add to that that some of it is also very specific to our region. So when we talk about GCC, it's still relatively immune versus some of the other com uh, countries around it. So, for example, Egypt is going through a devaluation. Uh, many companies are struggling in the tech space, and we are aware of many of them who've let go of uh, their tech talent. And we are finding it, at least for some of our portfolio companies, it's a lot easier than it was before. And that pricing point is, slotting, is starting to go down. Pakistan, probably as well. India, that probably the tech house of the world, is still doing relatively well. So probably when we get to India specifically, some uh, so, some com companies are doing better than others uh, when it comes to finding and retaining this talent, uh, especially when it comes to very very specialized talent. Yeah, I think it depends what we're we're talking. Mean, we're talking in generalities. Um, yes, but uh, but I think it depends what kind of people we're we're trying to hire. Touching on how to prepare or a fundraise. Typically, founders get super obsessed with that and suddenly it becomes a full-time role for the founder who gets distracted from the business. 
So what do you suggest as, again, going back to the do's and don'ts of how do you prepare well? How do you look, for example, at data rooms? When is it the right time to, you know, get a, a, a VDR? When is it the right time to hire an advisor or do you do it all in-house? Is it, do you need to have someone as a project manager to manage this for a full-time role? Is it the role of a CFO, a CEO? So a lot of questions, I, I think it's very useful to hear, you know, given your experience, how do you get ready for, for a fundraise? Yeah, I think it's going to be different at different stages of a company. Um, and, you know, there's many kind of interrelated decisions that you need to take with respect to team, advisor, um, and ability of people to manage uh, the process. But ultimately, I think the uh, the golden rule is you need the capital in order to survive and therefore has to be raised, right? So, so it is an existential issue. Um, perhaps more so than any other. Uh, now, there's two ways to raise the capital. One is you can raise it from your customer, in which case you don't need to raise it from the investor. And so if you believe that you're able to raise it from your customer, then uh, then you've solved the problem uh, already. And then the second is you need to raise it from an investor. And I think if you need to raise from an investor, um, again, it depends on time trajectory team. If it's all, you know, excellent then maybe and you have great relationships with investors then maybe you're able to raise it without a lot of preparation uh, because you've already educated um, the the investor on your on your story uh, but if not then it is a project um, and it can consume time of course it has to be done uh, and you're not always going to have the right people around the table when you need to raise the money um, so I think that whether you need a CFO or not um, let's maybe put that aside. Uh, of course, over time, you need a management team that has a good partnership across multiple functions. Um, building the model, which is the story for uh, of how the business is going to evolve over time. Um, building the equity narrative, which is the market conditions, the size, the competition, uh, the trajectory of the business, uh, what the product does, how it adds value, how it creates a, uh, you know, how it delivers a return to the customer, as well as uh, how the team has evolved. Uh, that's obviously very important as well. Um, and then um, uh, having the data room ready so that you can more quickly respond to questions that back up all the claims that you just made. Um, and the data room is something that you should have ready, you know, almost all the time and and i'm referring specifically to the commercial diligence not necessarily the legal diligence um but the commercial diligence and and being able to support the equity story is data that you should have available um and then lastly is of course the presentation and the pitch itself which um uh, does take some practice to get you know really really um polished um and then uh, then it's a matter of sort of actually executing against the uh, the investment pitch, meeting investors who you have built relationships with, um, sharing materials with them, responding to questions, uh, and receiving offers to the extent that your TAM trajectory and team all line up with what investors are looking for and are believable as well. I think if we go back to your question regarding stage and at what stage, we think of the, the late stage investor, 
one question that we always are asking as you know late stage investors, looking about uh, thinking about the exit, and you'd be surprised how many teams you know basically when you ask about the exit, what's okay? Are you the last? Are we the last money in? What happens if if this is the last round before an exit? And then you ask about the exit, and there's sort of like a blank stare in uh, the founder or or the management team. So I think also thinking about the exit, although a lot of people see building an, a company and an enterprise as something which you know doesn't have sort of a final destination, you should you should think about the exit, right? If it's oh, so I'm going to be listing this company soon. Okay, so if you're going to be listing this company soon, you're listing it in a regional exchange that is focused on profitability, or are you focused on another exchange that maybe allows you to continue to burn cash and be in the red because you're still showing hyper growth, 70, 80% growth? Those kind of questions, I think, are key at the late stage environment. I think that's right. Uh, there's not that many, as we were discussing earlier, late stage companies that have this particular problem. Um, but uh, but there is an absence of strong role models for an exit trajectory, right? Uh, we don't have too many successful, if any, listings that have come out of the, the region. And then we have, of course, one successful um, uh, kind of M&A exit uh, in, in Kareem in recent history, although they've uh, there've been other smaller ones, so I'm not surprised that there isn't, um, you know, both from the investor perspective and from the company perspective. There's really not a mature conversation around a public listing, right? Almost nobody has any experience with it on both sides. Um, so, so that one to me doesn't feel as abnormal, and maybe I would question whether the you know, I think it's important to think about it, um, but at the A, B, and C stage, I would argue that building a viable company is perhaps the the first priority, uh, rather than building a company that's designed for an exit. Um, and I think that the design for exit perhaps happens at D and E and F stage, of which you know there's vanishingly few such opportunities in the region. And we hope to see more of those. Of course. I think going back to your comment regarding the public markets, and we know regulators and other stakeholders, governments and uh, banks are obviously trying to bolster that as exit for companies, um, whether startups or more mature companies here across the region. So the focus on profitability, again, taking a bit of an optimistic um, view on this, I believe you'll start to see more of those successes and hopefully we'll get out of the limited bucket that you were talking about and more into plentiful examples, hopefully over the coming 24 months. I mean, the deepest capital market in the world is still United States, right? And uh, and most of our companies are, are fairly small relative to the size of that capital market and investors in that market are not familiar with our region either. I think that makes it not an obvious choice, um, which leaves sort of London, um, and and there have been some challenges with listings in in London, uh, or the the local 
exchanges which haven't seen much tech. Uh, so I think that path still needs to be, that trail still needs to be blazed. And, and uh, I think especially with a lot of the local markets, there's still a lot of focus on profitability, uh, especially if you look at Tadawal, if you look at ADX, there's a lot of focus on PE ratio, EV EBITDA ratios. So less so on, on basically priced uh, the, the EV revenue uh, ratio, which is the enterprise over the revenue ratio. You know, in the, in the US capital markets, there's a lot of crossover investors, right? Um, that have lubricated the transition from private to public. Um, and Alvaro, maybe you know of crossover investors in the region, I can't think of any. Um, so that's a part of the kind of capital maturity evolution is that our pension funds and insurance companies and so on with large assets under management are not investing in private companies and maybe they're not large enough. And then the private investors are not investing in public companies because that's not what they do. And therefore you do have a, a gap in expectation and understanding between private and public, at least in the tech world in this region. There are some examples, I think more at the government and you know national level. So you're starting to see some of the regional sovereign wealth funds act a little bit like crossover investors, right? Uh, be it very active initially and originally in public markets, but also making bets on a, on a uh, very individualized manner in but the same manager companies. has both strategy or is it different parts of that fund? Different, different pockets, right? But, but at, still the, at the right? end, it's still the same goal of driving a national agenda bringing national champions maybe saudi more so than anywhere else absolutely and that's because uh uh the in uh, the public market i was looking at this statistic actually you have about 25 30 percent participation of retail investors in saudi arabia yeah very that deep. is phenomenal very that's, very deep that's uh, the us as you were talking about i think they're at 45 50 percent retail participation Saudi Arabia has greater retail participation than a lot of the countries in Europe, definitely more than Spain for where I'm from or in Italy. So it's, it's I think, something that will, will bode well if, again, we get those uh, larger tech businesses also being able to demonstrate profitability, which is, to your point, Nabil, what investors in this part of the world want to see. Yeah. So, so then that means that anybody who's looking for a listing in the region needs to have a Saudi investor strategy, right? Whether it's retail or institutional. You said that. I didn't say it, but I think could be a good point. As a, <laughs> as a corollary of this, this conversation. Yeah. I would like to perhaps understand from you maybe one last piece of advice that you would be giving to founders at this stage who are contemplating going to market um, and trying to fundraise in this environment, especially in the region, and let's say focus on a late stage? I think it's just to focus on the fundamentals, build a solid business, um, ideally in a, in a large market with a great group of people. Um, you know, those are truisms, I think. And the capital will, you know, as far as possible, the goal is to raise as little capital as as required, right? Uh, and so the faster we can get to profitability and uh, have our own capital to reinvest in the business, the better for 
for the company um, and for direction. Anquir, I think you should patent that. The Anquir's three T's. Three T's. Three T's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alvaro? My recommendation is more so in this environment is make sure you diligence who you're pitching to. Do your homework as a founder, as a management team. Understand who you're pitching to. Are they really capable of looking at an investment into your firm? Don't waste your time nor the investor's time. So you'd be amazed how many people uh, show up uh, with, let's say, a mining business in East Africa for us. And obviously, they haven't even looked at our website. So you would know that you know, we, wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't be doing any of that. So again, diligence, uh, make sure that you've done your homework before. You can't fault them for trying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's something to be said about being efficient. <laughs> Great. Well, Good. thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks, thank you so much. Thanks, Alvaro. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the GC Call with me, Nabil Ismail and Alvaro Abeya. The GC Call is brought to you by Golf Capital and is produced by Amaya Media. You can follow the show on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Rami, Pocket Cast, and all the others too. And we'll have new episodes for you every two weeks.